Hello, and welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen, joined again by Cameron. And Matt will be joining us later on, I believe. Uh, but today we're going to be discussing banking or the basics of banking. Um, Cameron, you are essentially uh, rolling in the dough, I believe. So uh, you don't really need a bank. Bread dough. What? Bread dough. Bread dough. <laughs> bread dough. <laughs> different, uh, different type of dough, but equally uh, yes. useful. I mean, it uh, is one of the reasons why I hide most of my income under my mattress. <laughs> Which will be uh, after if you listen listen to this podcast, that might be what most of our listeners end up doing. So, um, okay, well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I guess to start off the podcast, I'll tell you why we're doing banking this week. And those of you in the United States probably know. Um, that the Silicon Valley Bank failed. And that was the second largest bank failure in the history of the United States. And it's kind of created a bit of a banking crisis and a public trust crisis in in, uh, the banks and uh, highlighted some of the issues. So I thought this would be a perfect uh, scenario, scenario, not a perfect scenario, but a perfect time to discuss banking and how we get into the situation and what banks do and how it affects the layman. Um, so I guess uh, also the Silicon Valley Bank was the <laughs> the bank for uh, my company, <laughs> company that I work for. And uh, so I get this email Friday night. I see the, the news stories come out. This is um, a week ago. And I saw news stories about the Silicon Valley Bank um, failing. And as most laymen you probably don't spend a long time thinking about it. I had work to do. I'd, so uh, go through my work, day of work. I'm finishing up and I get an email from our CEO <laughs> who says, essentially, everyone stay calm. And I'm like, well, why? Like what? Um, anyway, it's this long email about how they were our primary bank and uh, <laughs> that we think he thinks we're going to be fine. That uh, anyway, uh, it all came to. The, you know, a point on Sunday when the the United States federal government decided that they would insure uh, all funds for all depositors in the Silicon Valley Bank, meaning that everyone that had deposits in the Silicon Valley Bank could get um, would be able to get those from the government, um, not just up to the insured amount, which we will discuss today about why there are insured amounts of deposits and how that came about. Um, but that is, I guess, my anecdote for why we uh, are discussing banking today and how it's relevant to uh, even if you didn't have any money in the Silicon Valley Bank, how this could become relevant to you. So like it became relevant to me. Um, so let's go ahead and dive into a uh, the basics of banking. So what is a bank? Um, Cameron, I think you have uh, a piggy bank. I do have a piggy bank. Um, it's a place where I deposit my hard-earned money that I work for, and then it disappears out of my piggy bank faster than I put it in for some reason. <laughs> huh. That's weird. Keeps taking it, but yeah, someone, uh, somebody's robbing you. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. That that piggy, not trustworthy. Um, Okay, so yes, that's the the traditional uh, job of a, of a bank is 
to take deposits, loan out money, and then obviously uh, pay some type of, of interest rate, um, depending on the type of account um, and, and what exactly the, the structure of your uh, relationship is with the bank. But let's talk about some of their basics. Um, it says their primary role is to take in funds, that, that's your deposits, so that's when you take money to the bank, um, pool them, so put them together and lend them to those who need funds. So banks are intermediaries between depositors and borrowers. The amount banks pay for deposits uh, and the income they receive on their loans are called interest. So that's as you are depositing, your, your bank is hopefully giving you some type of interest rate, though for a long time interest rates were essentially zero. And depending, once again, on the type of account that you have, it's possible that you aren't really getting any interest from uh, your funds at the bank. Um, so that's something we're going to discuss just briefly. Um, but depositors can be in, in my savings account. <laughs> exactly. The tiny, uh, when, when you see the deposit amount, uh, it, it says interest payment, and uh, it's a rounding error. It's uh, five cents. I found a nickel on the ground, guys. It's not... Uh, I don't need that we'll give this to little customers randomly. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the sad part of having kind of a traditional bank. But um, all right, uh, deposits can be made, can be available on demand, uh, like that, that's a checking account, or with some restrictions, uh, savings, or or there are time restricted de- uh, deposit accounts, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So the bank's loan. Uh, out money. So at any given moment, some depositors need their money, but most do not. That enables banks to use shorter-term deposits to make longer-term loans. The process involves maturity transformation, converting short-term liabilities into long-term assets. So they're taking your money that you're giving them for an unspecified amount of time, but when they get a lot of it, they can generally trust that they can take some portion of that and loan it out to someone for let's say a mortgage, which is a long-term uh, you know, asset for the bank, that's you know over the or, course of general. What was that, Cameron? It's like, or the bank invests in for themselves and makes them more selves more money. <laughs> Correct. Yes, and so they are making money, and sometimes they do it in kosher ways, and sometimes ways that are uh, a bit shady and. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll get into a, a little bit of and how many issues they've had. Yeah, well, there's yeah the the Wells Fargo issues from I think everyone heard about those a couple of years ago at least everyone in the United States that Wells Fargo became famous for all kinds of issues with uh, I think it was mostly fees for them wasn't it just like overdraft fees Lots and fees. and then forcing their managers to open up uh, accounts and things like that so they oh, make right. more money off of. They've they've done a lot of shady things that they've got in trouble for, uh, yet true. they still seem to be running well for some reason. <laughs> too big, too big to fail, Cameron. Too big to fail. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Wells Fargo still chugging along, very large bank in the United States, um, and yeah, has had some issues. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, that, but. Um, yeah, it's, so the they have these long-term assets, these loans, and then banks pay depositors less than they receive from borrowers, and that difference accounts for the bulk of banks' income, income in most countries. So if they take a deposit in and tell you, okay, well, I'm going to give 
you for your savings account. I'll give you a one percent return. Then they turn around, they take, um, you know, the money from my savings account and the hundred other people's savings account. They loan it out as a mortgage and say, okay, I'm going to charge you five percent for that mortgage. Well, if they're paying one percent to me and they're taking in five percent from the mortgage, then obviously they're making four percent just to line their pockets. So um, <laughs> I'm not. This is going to sound like a largely anti-bank uh, podcast, but that's generally, I think, just the layman kind of uh, frustration. Uh, they obviously serve a great role in the economy, a necessary role. Um, but yeah, there are scenarios where we are uh, the, the public interest is not served, and so that's some of the things that we're going to discuss: uh, how that happens, and then why it sometimes leads to banking failures. Um, all right, we can, I, I think we can go with that a little bit. They have changed from, I would say, over the last hundred years. Their the roles. Bank like, yeah. I would are we gonna talk about like, you know, digital, like most everything is digital now. Hard currency yes. is becoming less and less. So Right. So no. we're, we're going to talk about, yeah, the, the fact that there used to be a gold standard and then it was backed by silver and then it's just nothing. And there's a term for that. And um, I guess we can we can hit that now. Um, the uh, the term is fiat, uh, fiat currency. Um, and it is uh, the case that it, for it, that's relatively recent in the history of uh, the United States banking system that we are not. Um, backed by precious metals. So it says for the past 40 years or so, the U.S. has uh, used a fiat money system, which establishes money through government action rather than backing the currency's value with precious metals. Because the government can now print money as needed without needing gold on hand, inflation is a greater risk. On the plus side, economists say that fiat money uh, means the Fed can create currency as needed to help stave off recessions or avoid a repeat of the Great Depression. So that's kind of the idea. And then, like Cameron said, you know, the, a lot of, you know, nowadays, most of your interactions with your bank are online. You don't actually see a lot of the currency. Um, you know, the fact that it, it uh, the government makes it means it's not relevant uh, whether or not there exists gold for this or, or some precious metal backing this number on your screen. It's just this is how much I'm told that I have. Um, or this is how much I, I I borrowed or whatever, right? So that's the uh, the idea behind a fiat money system, and uh, we see we've seen even recently in the United States history the uh, government essentially just printing money to stave off a recession, um, and that when the whole COVID pandemic hit uh, and people were sitting at home, the government printed a lot of money. <laughs> And yes, just, they gave, just gave it away, gave it away. And that, uh, uh and not just the government. That's All true. The, most of the governments around the world did that. That is true. Yep. And so actually that's one of the things that we'll also hit on a little bit more later, but the idea of the international banking system is relevant. Um, and the fact that there isn't really an international banking standard, which is why you get all of these different, um, issues um between different and how currencies change in their relation the value of you know the united states dollar versus the euro um those types of things are related to how 
the economy is going in particular areas, but also how the the uh, you know the the monetary policy is affecting the uh, the currency of that government. So, um, but let's go back a little bit here briefly just to discuss once again the, just kind of what the basic of a uh, a bank is before we ha- hit more of these kind of more economic policies that affect banks. Um, this says a bank's most important role may be matching up creditors and borrowers. The banks are also essential to the uh, domestic and international payments system, and they create money. Not only do individuals, businesses, and governments need somewhere to deposit and borrow money, they need to move funds around. For example, from buyers to sellers, or employers to employees, or taxpayers to governments. Here, too, banks play a central role. They process payments from the tiniest of personal checks, the large value of electronic payments between banks. So this is kind of what I was talking about. This is, you know, there are things that your bank does that you probably don't even think about frequently that are, you know, crucial to the working of the economy. And so while it's easy to focus on, you know, the fact that you got this massive overdraft fee when you're pretty sure it was the bank's fault, that's super frustrating. And maybe it was the bank's fault. Uh, but it is the case that they are also doing a bunch of other things that are making your life significantly easier. Um, I mean, just in, in my lifetime, the fact that we used to have to carry around coin purses or whatever, <laughs> like coins to me are, uh, they're relics of the past. They're, they're collector's items. You know, I, my, my little girls still collect pennies or whatever, and they hand it to me. And I was like, well, if you don't want it, I'm throwing it in the garbage. I don't need a penny. I don't want a penny. I don't want to, I don't really want a nickel. Uh, maybe at the point of dime is when I start saying, well, maybe I shouldn't throw this in the trash, but generally I just don't even see it anymore. Uh, coins are kind of a thing of the past and is by and large, uh, cash, right, Cameron? Um, yeah. Um, I would, with your little girl, you know, with the penny, it does cost the U.S. more money to make the penny than the penny is actually worth. It's true. And so maybe we should get rid of it. I think there is discussion about doing that. So I hope that they do. I, uh, it's they, a they silly They have eliminated thing. the penny on all military bases, from what I've heard. There you go. I've heard, so, and this is taking on a slight tangent from our banking discussion here, but relevant kind of, that there are areas in China that have gone completely cashless. I mean, you cannot pay for it with cash at a you know particular business or, or what or any businesses in that area, that city. I'm not sure. I don't know the specifics of it, but um, that cash is not accepted. You have to use some type of electronic means of paying, credit card, debit card, whatever else they have available, you know, Apple Pay or whatever it is. Have you heard about anything like that, Cameron? Uh, my current work will not accept any cash. Mm, right. You're starting to see that more, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you also see, um, yeah, it's just, just that it's, uh, <laughs> candidly, when I see someone pull cash out and I'm standing in the grocery line, line at the grocery store, I'm slightly frustrated because I think I should have picked a different line because instead of tapping and going, now it's like, okay, well, I've got to make change and count it and all the other stuff. So uh, it's kind of become a nuisance. And um, there are scenarios where cash is still needed. I still use it on occasion, but um, they, uh, yeah, it's becoming less and less the case that, that cash is, is something that you interact with on a day-to-day basis. 
but uh, like Cameron said, a lot of this is just digital now, right? So, um, but let's talk a little yeah, bit about how. You still need to give that, you know, money, that piece of whatever you want to call it, currency um, in your birthday envelope to your children or something like that. You know, it's that physical. That's true. Yep. I mean, I'm, I know they do make them now where you can just put your prepaid debit card in in the gift card. It's but it's true. just not quite the same. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Have you ever like just like held a wad of cash before? It kind of gives you this power trip. And it it's hard to simulate that holding a debit card. It's just not the same. It's like uh, I it could mean it's worth a lot more, but it's just not as fun as like just you know, you know making it rain. Stick card with a thousand dollars on it, or would you rather have a thousand ones in your hand? You know? <laughs> Uh, a thousand one seems a bit excessive. But then you can put it in the, like the little money shooty thing, and you know, be like, Ooh, I'm, you know, I don't know. Is money is money shooty thing? Is that like a a term that I need to be from? I'm not even sure what you're talking about. It's like a little gun uh, they use in like music videos that shoot out usually hundreds, oh. and okay. showing that they're how affluent they are okay they're, they're all right money into the air for fun um i'm like fun. i'm not that affluent so i would just <laughs> fill it full of ones <laughs> yeah exactly all right well um all right let's go back to um it says in many cases uh payments are processed nearly instantaneously so going back to the the, the way that the banks function and, and the kind of some of the things that they do so that the payments are now just instantaneous payments system also includes credit and debit cards a well operating payment system is a prerequisite for an efficiently performing economy and breakdowns in the payment system are likely to disrupt trade and therefore economic growth so uh, banks create money so this, uh, they do this because they must hold on reserve and not lend out some portion of their deposits, either in cash or in securities that can be quickly converted to cash. The amount of these reserves depends on the bank's assessment of its depositors' need for cash and on the requirements of bank regulators. We're going to talk about regulation here in, in a little bit. Uh, Did that come around from the Great Depression? That yeah, I think so. That required banks to hold on a certain portion? In case if right. there ever was run on the bank again. Yeah, there have been a couple of banking laws passed in the United States that we're going to discuss in detail, or not super detail because this is learning from a layman, but uh, kind of the over the general fallout from the the particular financial crisis and how it became law and what that law did. So yes, I believe that's the case, but we'll we'll hit that in a second. Um, so they do need to hold some on reserve, um, and the, the amount is also something we'll discuss. Um, so typically the central bank, a government institution that is the center of the country's monetary and banking system, uh, determines their, these requirements for, for deposits, uh, the percent, the amount that the bank needs to have in, in on hold, uh, in reserve. Banks keep these required reserves on deposit with central banks, such as the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, European Central Bank. Banks create money when they lend the rest of the money depositors give them. This money can be used to purchase goods and services and can find its way back into the banking system as a deposit in another bank, which is kind of a weird way of thinking about what happened to your money. Like it, you see it, 
in your bank, you know, when you log into your online banking system, but in reality, somebody just used that to buy a new car, you know, um, and that that money that you deposited into the bank, while well, you can get it back, is currently in use somewhere in the economy. So, um, this process of relending can repeat itself a number of times in a phenomenon called the multiplier effect. The size of the multiplier, the amount of money created from an initial deposit, depends on the amount of money banks must keep on reserve. So that's what the uh, federal bank, um, at least in the case of the United States, the the uh, the Fed kind of has to consider when making these policies and the government, uh, you know, when they're passing these laws, is if we make them, if banks need to have a large percentage of the reserves of the deposits on reserve, then that money can't be going back into the economy to kind of create this this kind of self-perpetuating system of uh, of this multiplier effect that they're talking about. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about securities and bonds. So this uh, so it says banks can complement traditional deposits as a source of funding by directly borrowing in the money in capitals market uh, capital markets. They can issue securities such as commercial paper or bonds, and they can temporarily lend securities they already own to further institutions for cash. A transaction transaction often called a repurchase agreement. So this is something way over the head of me when I started reading about this stuff. I was like, I don't, I've heard the term bond and security before, but to be entirely frank, I didn't know what they were. So let's give the definition for the layman here. A security is uh, in a financial context is a certificate or other financial instrument that has monetary value and can be traded. Securities are generally classified as either equity securities, such as stocks and debt, or as bonds and debentures. I don't even know what that word is. So let's just move right on past it. Uh, bonds. Bonds. So once again, something I've heard about before, maybe even something I own, though I'm not entirely sure, <laughs> are investment securities where an investor lends money to a company or a government for a set period of time in exchange for regular interest payments. So once the bond reaches maturity, the bond issuer returns the investor's money. The fixed income is a term often uh, fixed income is a term often used to describe bonds since your investment earns fixed payments over the life of the bond. So that's a security and a bond. Securities are a broader term that include bonds. And bonds are specific types of securities that are uh, set for a set period of time. So government bonds uh, are a big thing, and that they actually played bonds played a role in the f- banking failure of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, which we will wrap up by talking a little bit about once again, just how that happened and how you can protect yourself if you can protect yourself uh, in the future from that type of issue. Cameron, any questions about securities or bonds? Um, just makes me think of Moneyball. <clears throat> Not Moneyball. The, the Not baseball? Moneyball. The Big Short. The Big Short. That's the movie. Oh, the I'm Big thinking. Short. Okay. I was, going, I was trying to come up with how baseball factored into uh, securities and no, deposits. No, but... The big, big Short, where okay. basically it showed me that, man, is our banking system corrupt and I should not trust banks. <laughs> Just the way that there's this saying, like, absolute power corrupts absolutely, it seems like the access to unlimited amount of money also corrupts. Um, so 
there are scenarios where it just seems. And, yeah. and I guess, you know, since you're able to make your own money. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, well it's uh, problematic. What's, so we're going to move on to regulation here in just a second. So let's see. Um, let's Before we do that, let's talk a little bit about um, monetary policy, because what's more exciting than monetary policy? Um, ooh, 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 I says, know. Polytary policy. What, what, okay. All right. Mono is one, poly many. Okay. Anyway. Um, yep. Okay. I'm sorry. That's my dad joke <laughs> for the day. Oh, we always need one. Um, okay. Monetary policy. Banks also play a central role. That's sorry. It's like going back to that. That reminds me of the um, uh, Victor Borga. The uh, inflationary language uh, bit. If you guys, if our listeners had never heard Victor Borga before, he was a comedian pianist. Uh, I think he passed away, I don't know, quite a while ago, 20 years ago, I'm not sure, 30. Uh, and he had uh, a bit that he did where uh, inflationary language, where every number that you said, and not even just numbers, but any part of word that, that was a number, he'd... Uh, so instead of wonderful, it would be tutorful. Um, and he did a whole story. Anyway. Lieutenant would be Lebanon. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so it was a, a good time. Okay. Back to monetary policy. Banks also play a, a central role in the transmission of monetary policy, one of the government's most important tools for achieving economic growth without inflation. The central bank controls the money supply at the national level, while banks facilitate the flow of money in the banks within which they operate. At the national level, central banks can shrink or expand money supply by raising or lowering banks' reserve requirements. So that's what I was talking about earlier. This is some, some one of the things that the Fed considers. Um, and by buying and selling securities on the open market with banks as key uh, counterparties in the transaction, so the Fed can actually step in and buy and sell securities, which can have effect on the um you know, the monetary policy. Banks can shrink the money supply by putting away more deposits as reserves at the central bank or by increasing their holdings in other forms of liquid assets, those that can be easily converted to cash with little impact on their price. A sharp increase in bank reserves or liquid assets for any reason can lead to a credit crunch. So if you've heard that term credit crunch before, this is um, it's when the bank's reserves are increasing or, or they're, they're Purchasing of liquid assets all of a sudden is their their credit uh, the amount of credit amount of easy money there is in the system is is shrinking. Um, so by reducing the amount of money they have uh, money banks have to lend, which can then lead to higher bar high, higher borrowing costs as customers pay more for scarcer bank funds. So um that's a little bit about monetary uh, the, how the banks deal with monetary policy so and then three ways that banks can fail or the three vulnerabilities that uh, banks have um higher proportion of short-term funding such as checking accounts and uh repos to total deposits most deposits are used to finance longer-term loans which are hard to convert into cash quickly so that's the scenario where uh you've got and, and that my understanding uh, is that was related to how the Silicon Valley Bank went under. So once again, I'll hit that here right at the end. But um, a low ratio of cash to assets um, and then a low ratio of capital 
assets minus liabilities to assets. So the layman in me kind of isn't entirely clear on how those last two are different. I mean, that's why it says assets minus, minus liabilities. But anyway, just so we're aware, the banks have these vulnerabilities. What, Cameron? If you're counted, you understand. Okay, um, and I'm not. <laughs> so your uh, it was liabilities and capital. Was that what it is? Uh, the low ratio of capital to assets. Oh, capital and assets. So capital. It says assets minus liabilities. That's what it says for capital. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, so your assets is basically. I guess, yeah. Cat easily available cash. Um, versus your debt. Um, well, this says. Hold on. This says other stuff. Well, I think the idea is that if you own a bunch of mortgages, if a bank owns, let's say, a hundred thousand well, mortgages, yeah, um, because it's our capital and that's, they those are always buildings well, and those, land, everything like that goes towards your capital. Right. So, well, that so those are assets. But if I have a hundred thousand mortgages, but only a small amount of cash, I don't know what a small amount of cash is for a bank. Let's say a million dollars. Uh, I'm in trouble because I own a hundred thousand mortgages, which is, you know, probably a billion dollars or who, I don't, anyway, I have no idea. A lot of money there. Right. Um, whereas, and I have a million dollars in cash assets or in cash, then I could, uh, you know, I'm, I'm liable to have a bank run because I don't have the money to give to depositors when they need it. Um, because I have all of my money sunk into assets. That's my layman understanding. Um, and then capital assets minus liabilities. So I've got a bunch of mortgages that I own, but then I also have my own liability, meaning like I've borrowed money from other institutions. I've got some some of my money leveraged in some way that I'm the bank is paying interest to someone else. Um, and, and so I've got that. That's taking away from my income from these other assets that I do own. So, yeah, till you've reached, you know, but anyway, it gets really yes. complicated. Take an accounting class or, you know, or don't or listen to this podcast. Wikipedia a little bit. What we're also talking about if you're unclear and you'll probably get more confused because goodness, it's confusing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, let's, let's hit two or three more points before we start diving into regulation, um, which once again, these, these are like so, so exciting to almost nobody, but useful to know for the layman. Uh, and like I said, anecdotally useful, hopefully enough to continue listening to the podcast, because when we talk about it here at the end, the run that, ha that happened on the Silicon Valley bank, you can start understanding how this could happen elsewhere and how it might affect you. So um, let's talk about regulations. Regulations are generally designed to limit banks' exposures to credit, uh, expo uh, market and liquidity risks, and to overall solvency risk. Um, and so the bank safety and soundness of a, are a major public policy concern, and government policies have been designed to limit bank failures and the panic that they can ignite. So again, if you've been in the United States in the last week, that's been a huge piece of conversation, right? Just the bank that failed, even if you, it wasn't as relevant to you as it turned out to be to me, is that uh, the, when a massive bank, the second largest bank in the history of the United States failed, 
um, not the second largest bank in the history of the United States, the second largest failure of a bank in the history of the United States. Um, that becomes obviously a big concern. All of a sudden, everyone f is looking at their bank with a, a little less certainty. <laughs> um, but so so that's regulation. So let's talk a little bit about how it's regulated. We've already talked a little bit about the Fed. I'm going to talk dive into that even more. Um, but it says banks, the Fed is what uh, determines the banks must retain at least 10% of each deposit on hand and can lend out the other 90%, at least 10%. So that's said the, the Fed can actually change that number or lower. Or I, as I, said, I don't think it actually can go lower, but uh, it can be significantly higher than 10%. I can drop all the way down to 10% as determined by federal law. Um, the uh, determined so that actual reserve requirements determined by the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. When the Fed reduces the reserve requirement for member banks, it is implementing an expansionary monetary policy. We were just talking about the idea that we want more money out there in the system being borrowed and used, and um, and so when it uh, increases that uh, money that needs to be on hand, uh, it is implementing a contractionary monetary policy. And that makes it uh, that that credit crunch that we were talking about. Um, the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, it's an independent agency created by Congress, um, is uh, was created uh, the, uh, to make sure that when people uh, that when banks have issues, <laughs> that people can get their money still, right? So. Um, part of the U.S. history currency was the gold standard. We already talked about that, right? That's this, and so we now have got this fractional reserve banking idea—the idea that only a, a certain amount of it needs to actually exist in the bank. Um, and so the FDIC was formed to prevent such occurrences by uh, ensuring all deposits that customers keep at the bank. So um, it's a, it ensures savings accounts, checking accounts, and other deposit accounts. During the 2008 global financial crisis, the FDIC raised the deposit limit to $250,000 that are, is being insured. Um, and the uh, when the, the Silicon Valley Bank uh, failed, most individuals out there, the layman out there, probably doesn't have a lot of accounts over $250,000. Uh, that's really not relevant to most of us, right? But as a corporation, $250,000 is a not, it's a pretty insignificant amount of money when you think about it in the terms of a business. Um, and so it, that's why it became such a, the, the idea that the Silicon Valley Bank was largely a corporate bank, that, that uh, it had a lot of big, uh, you know, it helped a lot of startups. It was a bank for lots of, obviously, era companies in the Silicon Valley area um, that probably had millions of dollars on the book and $250,000 wasn't going to cut it, which is why on Sunday, uh, President Biden said, actually, we're going to insure everything. Uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about why that has is a bit problematic, and even if it makes sense. Um, okay. So I, I said the word commercial bank. There are different types of banks. There's commercial banks. Um, which are they provide various services such as providing business loans, accepting deposits, and offering basic investment products uh, to individuals and private businesses. Um, 
The commercial banks also offer other financial services such as global trade services, merchant services, insurance products, retirement products, and treasury services. Uh, there's credit unions. That's one that the layman might be pretty familiar with. Credit unions type of bank that's, you know, that's a, your local neighborhood bank type. Um, it's open to a specific category of people who are eligible for membership. Member owned, so you have stock in your your credit union, right? Um, and it's operated by the members on a basis of people helping people, right? So the idea is that this is a community serving institution, uh, non nonprofit, just there to do the the functions of a biz uh, of a bank, but without the uh, overhead of most of these big biz, uh, banks. So there are benefits to that, right? Um, you get a higher interest rate generally uh, in a savings account or, or whatever lower lower interest rate on the loan, but the downside is it's it's local. It's generally, you know, there are a couple branches of your local credit union, maybe a few in your state, but not outside of that. And so when you start talking about interacting with other banks, going out and using the ATM in a different country or whatever it is, things get a little trickier. They're having that your credit unions having to use services from a larger bank, which then they are getting charged for. So is that there are th things to consider as far as um, credit unions, but they're, they're a nice um, local way to uh, to use a bank. And then there are investment banks. Investment banks are banks that are prov provide corporate clients access to the capital markets to raise funds for expansion. They help companies raise funds in the stock market and bond market to finance their expansion, acquisitions, and other financial plans. They also facilitate mergers and acquisitions by identifying viable companies for acquisition that meet the buyer's criteria. So my understanding is it, these these generally rigid uh, kind of definition of, of what a particular bank is kind of is fuzzy um, these days. And there's also online banks, and that's obviously very, very recent that there are. All right. Uh, one I'm familiar with is the Discover Bank, like Discover Card is a uh, well-known a credit card in the United States. I don't think it's as big outside of the United States, um, but they've started their own bank. It is a fully online bank, meaning there is no branch. There is no brick and mortar store out there. You can't go talk to a Discover Bank uh, employee person face-to-face uh, -face, um, that doesn't exist. So because of that, they have they have some of the uh, – they can offer higher, higher interest rates. Um, they have relatively lower fees um, because they just aren't, don't have the uh, overhead that a brick and mortar store – a brick and mortar bank is going to cause um anyway but th these distinctions between an online bank and investment bank a commercial bank uh, my understanding is they're kind of fuzzy these days because of some of this regulation which we're now going to dive into changing and in, in the way that uh that affects how banks have to operate um Cameron, I was actually the, say, I use an internet bank oh you do uh-huh. And I, what is your I opinion? Have a local brick and mortar bank that we use, and then I have an internet bank. And um, I have found that internet banks don't always work nicely with things. Uh, same with some of my local credit unions. Like if I'm trying to link like a PayPal account or something like that, if they don't like each other, they they will they will not allow you to link anything, which uh, has been frustrating at times. Right. 
yeah, that's one of the things that you get right from these large, these huge banks is that they're in, they're integrated into everything. And uh, so you get the benefit of that where a local credit union or an on, a newer online bank probably doesn't have that same access. I mean, you're at least getting good interest rates, right, Cameron? Uh, yeah. And my um, no um, my online bank has no uh, fees, so I don't get hit oh, nice. with any overdraft fees or anything like that. Granted, they don't let you spend more than what you have. Well, that's which I'm to, with, but to be expected. Yes, but there's no like there's no overdraft fees. There's no like I don't there's no fees with that. Oh, bank, that's nice. Which, which I really like. I was like, yeah, that's sweet. I like that. That's great. Right. So. Okay. Awesome. Well. Like um. Okay. So I was going to talk a little bit about the basics of accounts. I assume that most laymen know what a savings account is and a checking account. Um. So I'm not going to dive into that really. A, a CD or a certificate of a deposit of deposit. Um. That's a a fixed amount of money for a defined period of time. And uh, so you're getting an interest, a particular interest rate for a certain amount of time. Most people are familiar with those as well. Um, whether or not you've ever had one, maybe you, you probably heard of them before. Anyway, those are some of the different types of accounts. Then there's a money market account that banks offer, and that's going to have a minimum balance, but that's going to give you a higher interest rate. Um, because uh, the money is less accessible. You, I, my, I don't think I'd have a money market account, but the idea is that you can't just pull it at the drop of a hat um, because it's generally it's invested in like the stock market or something like that, uh, some type of uh, security out there that you're actually invested in um, instead of them doing it quietly behind your back and you, them keeping the money. A money market account gives you more of that return of your own money, but then requires that when you want your money back, they have to have more time to get it to you. So um, anyway, let's Just talk regulations. For them to use your money to make themselves more money. <laughs> That's what That's banks do. <laughs> okay, so let's talk regulations. This is where we're really diving into history class. Uh, probably, Cameron, you've heard about the Glass-Steagall Act before, uh, maybe in the history class at some point. Um. Uh, I'm unfortunately, I do not remember learning that. I, it's quite possible that I did. I just do not remember. Okay. That's okay. Even if you did, if you would, if before I did the research for this podcast, you'd ask me what the Glass-Steagall Act was, I could probably tell you it was a banking act. And that's where my knowledge would have ended. <laughs> uh, so let's give you, uh, the layman, a little bit more information about why that's relevant, why the Glass-Steagall Act is relevant right now and uh, how it's transformed and changed uh, over the course of the last 90 years. So it's a, it was enacted in 1933, and if you're familiar with our history series, which we kind of died at after the, I think we finished in the 30s. <laughs> um, anyway, that's uh, the time of the Great Depression, right? So this is the Glass-Steagall Act following the stock market crash. Commercial banks were accused of having too much speculative and taking uh, too much risk with depositors' funds. At the time, commercial banks were heavily engaged in stock market trading, and they used their depositors' funds in these ventures. So when the stock market crashed, many banks were unable to return depositors' uh, funds in full, 
many depositors rushed to withdraw their uh, savings while banks still had funds, leading to bank runs that created the domino effect on bank collapses. So uh, the bank run that you see in It's a Wonderful Life, um, that's the uh, the idea of, you know, people, everyone here is, oh, I, this bank's not going to be able to have enough, uh, doesn't have enough money for everyone to get their money out. I want to get my money out right now then before everyone else tries. Um, so that's the, uh, a, a bank run. So when the stock market crash uh, happened, that's what happened to uh, a lot of these banks. And so the, per, the Glass-Steagall Act uh, started being uh, formed. So Glass and Siegel were, were senators, I think senators, I think we'll hit that here in a second, but uh, congressmen uh, in uh, the United States federal government this is, uh, was enacted to result, and, and they came up with this act, which was enacted to solve problems allegedly caused by commercial banks. There was a shared view that banking industry had become greedy, investing in risky portfolios using their depositors' funds. Um, one of the changes created by the act was the separation of commercial banks and investment banking activities. So they created this distinction that I, I said is a little fuzzy now because I, some of these things have been repealed or changed in the last 90 years. Banks were given a year to ch choose if they uh, wanted to be a commercial bank or an investment bank. Uh, the law also formed the Federal Deposit Insurance Co Corporation, which we already talked about, which is the FDIC, which when you go to your local bank and you see that uh, on your, you know, on you know, a stamp somewhere. Uh, that's what that means that your funds are uh, guaranteed. Uh, when it was first uh, at the Glass-Steagall Act was first added or first passed um, at 1933, the FDIC insured deposits up to $2,500. So that was uh, that's not a lot. Um, obviously, back then it was a lot more. So this was increased to 5,000. When the agency became permanent two years later, and then obviously, like I said, it's now all the way up to 250,000 as of 2019, um, and or 2023, which is now who knows maybe the limit will increase again because it was uh, all funds were just uh, insured for the latest bank collapse. Um, the FDIC was given the authority to insure bank uh, banks under the Federal Reserve System and act as a regulator of banks chartered by state governments, but not under the Federal Reserve System. Um, so in 1965, the Congress passed the Bank Holding Company Act as an extension of the Glass-Steagall Act to tighten regulations on the banking sector. The new law targeted banks involved in underwriting insurance, uh, which was considered too risky. The decision to prevent large banks from amassing too much power to the disadvantage of consumers. So this is, I guess, the when you're talking about um, regulation, this is really comes down to for a layman. It's this interplay of yeah, are banks getting too greedy, so we need to regulate them, or does regulation hamper them to the point that I'm that the economy is not doing as well as it could, and so that's this this interplay between do we need to regulate it or do we need to you know slash regulation so the governments can so the banks can kind of just go hog wild and uh, use money in any which way they want, which can have disastrous outcomes. But until it has disastrous outcomes means everyone gets to reap the benefits, not only the, the rich people that, uh, in the banks, but you know the consumers of the bank services get to reap the benefits of, oh, they're paying me 10% to deposit my money. <laughs> 
uh, great until they're paying nothing because they're gone, right? Um, so that's that's what this regulation is about. And the Glass-Steagall Act took this step because we had the Great Depression, which is obviously uh, was going to precipitate some type of action from the government when you have such a catastrophic outcome in the economy. So, uh, however, this push and pull between um, you know the uh, the bank owners and, and employees, the, the the bank lobby essentially versus regulation from the government. Um, came to the point where where the Glass-Steagall Act was repealed. Um, it says large U.S. banks were commercially disadvantaged compared to foreign banks that performed both commercial and investment banking activities. So that's, like I said, the pro- one of the problems with regulation, and I, I kind of alluded to this near the beginning of the podcast, is that we don't really have a full international banking monetary system, right? It's, it's per government, per country. And so if we are tightly regulating our banks here in the United States, but a international bank has significantly looser restrictions, then all of a sudden you have people, rich people, offshoring their money, right? I'm going to deposit my money elsewhere because the banks can offer me better um you know, better interest rates, better whatever. And uh so if my local bank, United States banks, are not performing as well as international banks, then all of a sudden the government's incentivized to be able to give them a leg up because obviously your bank is going to be paying taxes and so uh, and just generally driving your economic growth. Uh, and so if you are regulating too much versus foreign banks, you are probably hindering your economy to some degree. Uh, Cameron, did you have an insight and maybe you offshore your money? I don't offshore my money, um, but that is uh-huh. an interesting thing. But that's why probably lots of criminals offshore their money to certain areas here, particularly in the U.S. They go to the Caymans is always talked about probably because they have very loose regulations there to where people can't get their money. Or yeah. They- and- and candidly, I didn't spend a lot, a lot of time doing uh, criminal inf- investigation into why people uh, take their money outside of the United States. Um, I do. I, I am aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. There, there, I'm, clearly, there are reasons that people take their money elsewhere. Switzerland, for example. Right. Uh, Matt's joined us yeah. also, I believe. So, yes, the Nazis hid lots of money in at Switzerland, but they don't want you to know that. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so lots of different banks that uh, would be, um, like I said, international banks. And, and when you're uber wealthy, maybe it makes sense to and maybe you have someone that does this. You, you have a guy that uh, does the bank research for you and figures out where to put it for the layman among us. Um, this is kind of irrelevant, except in the way that it affects the overall economy once again. So back to the idea that now we're repealing the Glass-Steagall Act. As a result, bankers and most regulators agreed that some of the things that the act aimed to guard were ambiguous and started working on ways to overturn the act in the 1980s. In 1999, Congress passed the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. Um, that act overturned the Glass-Steagall Act and allowed banks to offer commercial and investment banking services. So there were some restrictions there, obviously always some regulation at the, the federal level, but essentially it ro- rolled back a bunch of the regulations. And that was during President Clinton. Um, 
that said the new law encouraged the growth of large banks in the United States, including Citigroup, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan. The act allowed commercial banks to provide insurance underwriting that was previously restricted. Um, and then obviously there is fallout from that. Um, that followed was aggressive risk tanking by banks, reprofits uh, from securities trading. So all of a sudden we now have the same issues that we had before. Um, and lo and behold, <laughs> less than 10 years later, we get a financial crisis again. Now, it's hard to directly track any one action in a massive you know, economy to a particular law. But, you know, obviously th there were multiple things contributing to the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. But it was the case, obviously, this probably had some effect on it. Um, it says after the financial crisis, uh, some legislators wanted to reinstate the Glass-Steagall Act. Uh, key players in the financial industry didn't, obviously, want that <laughs> because it was going to hamper them. Uh, instead, legislators passed the Dodd-Frank Act in 2010 that made efforts to reinstate sections of the Glass-Steagall Act through the Volcker Rule. Um, and so we're getting a bunch of different things here. Uh, I guess we could probably hit here uh, the Dodd-Frank Act. It says uh, it's a Wall Street reform bill. The Con uh, Consumer Protection Act of 2010 was enacted into law during the Obama administration as a response to the financial crisis of 2008. Um, named after Senator Christopher Dodd, uh, Dodd and Representative Barney Frank. Uh, it sought to introduce significant changes to financial regulation and create new government agencies tasked with implementing the various clauses in the law. So once again, just the whole idea is to create some financial stability regulation to prevent another crisis like we just had in 2008, 2009. Um, and so it, it, it Established the Financial Stability Oversight Council, FSOC, to address issues affecting the financial industry and protect consumers from abusive financial practices. So that's the Dodd-Frank, and, and that right now that's in the, um, the news, right? Because the Dodd-Frank was repealed. Well, let's get to that. But right after I, I mentioned the Volcker Rule, another key provision in the Dodd-Frank Act is the Volcker Rule, which prohibits banks from making high-risk speculative investments that may disadvantage their consumer their customers. Um, and so that's uh, the idea behind the Volcker Rule is, once again, we don't want these high-risk speculative investments that cause these financial crises to happen. Um, but then... Once again, with the idea of this push and pull of regulation versus growth in the economy, Dodd-Frank repealed was repealed, at least parts of it. Um, and I'm trying to find the year for that. Oh, yeah, there it is. Um, in 2018, the U.S. government created the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, exempting dozens of U.S. banks from the Dodd-Frank's Act's banking regulations. Um, and so... That's a massive acronym. That doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? Uh, the law, that one is the one that is currently in. And so the idea there is that the law raised the asset threshold at which banks are subject to stricter regulations from $50 billion to $250 billion. So smaller banks didn't have to have the same regulations under the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, and so... Coincidentally or not coincidentally, the Silicon Valley Bank had just under $250 billion when it failed. So um, the idea that the, those these banks had less regulation makes it easier for them to grow, but also makes them more likely to fail. Um, 
So that's a little bit about the regulation and why we regulate. Um, says the Dodd-Frank was uh, enacted with the aim of preventing a recurrence of the financial crisis that almost crippled the United States financial system. So uh, do we want that uh, regulation? I don't know. From the layman point of view, you want some, right? Um, it's just how much and what makes sense and how do we hold our banking uh, systems accountable. Let's hit two other points before we finish up with uh, talking about the failure of the bank and how to uh, how the layman can protect ourselves. Um, before we talk about a couple other terms, I wanted to just mention once again, we have listeners in all 50 states, uh, but we are really not doing well in northern Canada. Yukon Territory still shutting us out. Um, so if we could just get a few of you northern Canadians that do listen to just pass the word along, you know, um, carrier pigeon. Uh, dog sled, whatever you need to do to get the word of the Learn It From a Layman podcast up to those remote tribes and villages in the north. <laughs> Let them know that they can listen to a banking a podcast or any of the other podcasts that they like. And uh, go ahead and, and uh, share that with them. Probably not Carrier Pigeon, though, because I think they're all dead. Um. Can I get confirmation, Cameron, or that we have, do you have a carrier pigeon? Is that still a thing? Um, they are all dead, but um, there is a few genetic scientists working on bringing them back um, in a very interesting way. Oh, Maybe yeah, we'll that's... use that in another podcast, but um, they may come back at some point. That's just like the woolly mammoth. I've heard discussions about bringing the woolly mammoth back, which would be I pretty mean, cool. I would like to see a furry elephant, so <laughs> that'd be that would be quite interesting. I've heard that it could have some benefits to the uh, the uh, climate. I, I don't know. Anyway, mostly I want to pet a furry elephant. Can can we get that to happen? Um, okay, back to banking. What is so a couple of these terms that the layman hears uh, that uh, all over the place and that I as a layman was unfamiliar with exactly how it worked. Um, and I wanted to just give a little insight to that. So quantitative easing. This was all the rage here. I think a couple of years ago you heard it all that over the place and like uh, economic reports or whatever. Quantitative easing is a monetary policy for printing money that is implemented by the central bank to uh, energize the economy. The central bank creates money to buy government securities from the market in order to lower interest rates and increase the money supply. So essentially just shoving money into the system. Um, and what, uh, when is it used? The uh, government's economy is stagnant or not performing well. Quantitative easing can be used um, by the central bank will evaluate the causes or factors that affect the status quo and then take measures to ease the issue. So usually higher interest rates and inflation are the major factors that trigger the economic slump, especially when they're getting out of hand. So um, to carry out this unconventional monetary policy, a central bank will buy government securities from commercial banks and other private financial institutions. It will lower short-term interest rates that the prices of these financial assets will raise, boosting investments. Essentially, it's a way of consuming these bonds, these government-backed bonds, by using government-printed money. Um, and that just puts more money in the system. And uh, 
there are probably downsides. Uh, it says there are negative effects of quantitative easing that will typically only be felt in the future. Of course, that's how a financial system works. Increasing the money supply too quickly will cause inflation. So, um, and we can talk a little bit more about quantitative easing, but I think just a basic understanding of that's what they're doing. They're buying these back, the government-backed securities with this money that they're printing, and uh, it makes, it just lubricates the system. And we now have money flowing, but the problem is when you get a bunch of money flowing in the system, you everyone's got more money, right? And that is called inflation. So, and what do we do about that? Well, how about hiking the interest rate? Um, and so that's the... The Fed hikes the interest rate. Uh, and by the way, we talked a little bit about the Fed. That's the central bank of the United States. Um, it says the Federal Reserve, more commonly referred to as the Fed, is the central bank of the United States and is the supreme financial authority behind the world's largest free market economy. Because of the magnitude of the U.S. influence of the global, global economy, the Fed is considered one of the most influential financial institutions in the world. And we could talk about the Fed for a long time, but we're not going to. So back to hiking interest rates. Um, it says a uh, hike in the Fed funds rate is one of the key monetary policies, the levers that the central bank has in its arsenal to slow down inflation by making it more expensive to borrow. This, in turn, can also apply the brakes to an overheating economy. Generally, rate hikes mean that the economy is approaching the peak of an economic cycle. So uh, as it's raising the interest rates, it's harder to get money, right? That's, once again, takes you kind of a credit crunch idea. Higher interest rates, lower inflation by making it more expensive to borrow, decreasing the money supply, strengthening the dollar, and managing market expectations. Um, so it uh, that's the case right now, right? Where the, the federal bank keeps raising interest rates, which is why we got mortgage rates out there at you know six and a half, seven percent, uh, which historically is actually still not bad, but uh, compared to those out there that were buying. You know, four years ago that got, or three years ago even, that got 2.99% uh, interest rates or whatever, um, it it hurts when you're trying to buy a home. Um, so those are a couple of the terms that I had uh, cursor, cursorily familiar with before, and I wanted a layman to also become a little bit more uh, familiar with. Um, okay, let's wrap up here uh, with talking a little bit more about uh, the what happened to the uh, Silicon Valley Bank um, and uh, what might happen in the future and how you can essentially protect yourself. So all th this I grabbed this from a news article. It said that all banks face interest rate risk today on some of their holdings because of the Fed's rate hiking campaign. This has resulted in $620 billion in unrealized losses on bank balance sheets uh, as of December 2022. Um, so that's essentially the the Silicon Valley Bank had a lot of these securities uh, they had purchased for um, that at lower interest rates. And as the and so these are long long term assets, but pay at a particular particular rate and you can trade these um, but when these the interest rate at which you purchase these securities is now significantly lower than the rate that the government is currently issuing them at, you can't trade them. All of a sudden, that's the only you're going to get whatever that interest rate is until the maturity of the of that loan or of that of that bond. And so, if you need funds quickly, well, you can't get it 
previously you could you know trade that uh, for some other asset or some or cash that someone else would pay, buy your your bonds off of you or whatever. Well, they're not going to buy a bond that's paying at two percent when they could get one from the government for five percent or whatever. So all of a sudden they have you have a liquid a liquidity crisis, which is essentially what a Silicon Valley Bank faced, and that is. Uh, part of the issue. Like I said, you're learning this from a layman. Um, there are lots of news articles out there, but that the general idea is that um, the uh, um, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank and, and Signature, which is another one uh, that was, I don't remember if it's completely failed or if it mostly failed, were complying with regulatory requirements, um, but the, the composition of their assets was not in line with industry averages. So Signature had 5% of its assets in cash and SVP had 7%. So it did not have enough cash on hand. That's what it comes down to. So industry average is 13%. So they had you know half or less than half of uh, the industry average of, of cash available. Um, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, 55% of their assets were in fixed income securities, like what I was just talking about compared to the industry average of 24%. So that's kind of where they really got uh, themselves into a corner. Um, and then as the government's decision to backstop all deposits of SVB and Signature, regardless of their size, make it less likely that banks with less cash and more securities on their books will face a liquidity shortfall because of mass massive withdrawals driven by sudden panic. So that's the argument to do what the government did, is that all of a sudden you just don't have that panic in the same way. It's like, oh, the government's going to handle it. The flip side of that coin, right, is the concern that if the government's going to handle it, then the banks don't feel a need to be accountable and they can just go out and do things willy-nilly as long as they're not going to get caught even if they fail then everyone's going to be bailed out so the government the consumer's interest is entirely in finding a government a, a bank that will give them the best deal that they can get regardless of how the bank is doing that right uh, because well, everything that I as a consumer deposit into the bank is going to be covered. Um, so I don't have any incentive to watch out for shady investments or shady practices from the bank. Um, so that gives the company no incentive to also, uh, you know, self-regulate in that way um, beyond just the basic requirements of the law. So that's why this step of ensuring the whole deposits for everyone is going to come with uh, some downsides is once again we're providing no incentive to the consumer to investigate banks but as a layman when i i, I heard this reasoning i'm like well i never investigate banks why would i investigate banks i have no time for this i investigate banks to the point of can i uh, give you my money and get a debit card and a credit card or whatever and get some money back thank you okay um very transactional in basis in how I interact. Cameron, I'm assuming you as a layman also pretty transactional with your bank, not a lot of uh, deep research into how they function. Uh, no, but I've always wanted to start my own bank. And it seems like that's not a bad idea because if I do that, then I can get lots of money and then it can magically go to some international bank and then I just failed, and then the government bails out all my customers, and I'm still doing well. Right. Yeah. So the, the um, <laughs> well, so the the people at the bank, yeah, I mean, it, it becomes, yeah, it becomes tricky, and, and then it's like, say, it just seems like 
Uh, I don't know. Maybe we should just have a government-run bank, but that also seems not like a good idea. There's lots of weird, you know, things going through my head right now. (laughs) Ah, yes, I'd love to be invest in your bank, Cameron. Um, Sweet. (laughs) You can be the uh, CFO. All right. Clearly, I'm qualified by giving this podcast. Yes. Um, Uh, yes. So essentially the investors in the bank are the ones that have to be careful now because you invest in a bank that fails. You are not getting bailed out. Your share of Silicon Valley Bank is now worth the dirt in your front yard. I mean, it is trash because that bank actually went under, right? The people working for that bank no longer employed or at least not. It won't be uh, after a certain amount of time, the government takes it over. And I don't anyway, I've some of the people I know actually used to work for or currently work. I don't know. It's kind of weird for the Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and they said there was certain like some type of 45 day period at which the government was going to employ them to help get through this first. So step they can of find a failure. No, more like to make to make sure the assets and deposits and, and all the things that uh, that the consumer, the customers need to get access to happen. Okay. That, that so essentially a winding down period in the bank can get their money and then the bank dissolves and then they're jobless. Yes. That's essentially my understanding. So, um, that, and, you know, really makes me want to perform well for that 45 days. <laughs> I guess well, I heard once this is rumor, but that they get paid a time and a half for that 45, those 45 days. So oh, well, there we go. That's I'm going to get paid well, no matter what I do. So, all right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then they'll go move on to a new bank and hopefully not do the same thing. Um, yeah. So that's, it becomes a bit self-perpetuating, at least in the incentive structure. And uh, and even if the investors have some incentive in making sure the bank's not doing shady things, if the consumers are not in, interested in in good regulatory practices uh, and good sound fiscal policy by the bank, then at some point you're going to probably run up against another financial crisis, uh, at least to some degree. So anyway, that's the layman needs to consider a few things when looking at your bank. Um, you need to consider interest rates that you can be getting, right? Be that on a loan or, or on your deposits. Uh, you need to be con- considering uh, how long it's been a business. You need to consider, um, you know, the in, the footprint of that bank. Is it a local, f- and uh, if it's a local bank, is it well, well liked and well recognized by the community? Are they, you know, uh, doing a good job out there? Um, or is it in an in, like at a national bank, uh, Wells Fargo, a Citibank, or whatever that is uh, so large that you know that the government will make sure that it doesn't fail? Um, the, the, so there are some things that the layman just basic things to consider when looking at a bank. And like Cameron said, there's fees to consider, all of those types of things. But uh, if I'm to add one more thing to the layman's job plate, is just consider the uh the likelihood that your bank is doing shady things and or the likelihood that it's going to fail um because that while it seems unlikely right um the the last line of the last article i read before we started this says however with one over 100 1 trillion of bank deposits currently uninsured i believe that the banking crisis is far from over 
So that coming from somebody, obviously, that uh, has some knowledge of the, of the banking system. So just be aware of where your, your money is at. Um, maybe diversify. That would be a good idea. So basically, what you're saying is most banks are doing shady stuff and that we should just keep all our money under that quarter million dollars. Just right. run it that one. So it or is insured under- by the government so we can get it. Uh, well, that's one way of doing it. The other way would be uh, shoving it under your mattress like we started the podcast, right? Or the piggy bank that is self-emptying. Um, anyway, yeah, I really okay. need to talk to about that. I think she's stealing my money. Talk to who? <laughs> my dog, Wrigley. I think she's oh. stealing my money. Okay, that seems likely. Um, it would probably be coming out in the, on the other side if that were the case. I so. don't know. She's pretty clever, even though she doesn't have opposable thumbs. She's a, a, able to do a lot more stuff with her paws than I would have expected. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, then don't use your dog as a bank, um, guys. And if you use a piggy bank, make sure that your dog is not robbing you blind. Um, all right. She's, on that note. You know, and she might be using the Internet because there's new stuff appearing in my house all the time. So. <laughs> Good. Blame the dog. Um, it's okay. Where we go? A, a quick teaser for the next couple podcasts. We have some uh, new guests coming on. Uh, we have a, a entrepreneur, small business owner um, in advertising and marketing coming on. Uh, I think that'll be in two weeks. Our next podcast. Um, a friend of mine from San Diego. Great guy and very insightful. And uh, anyway, just. Awesome. He'll be he'll be great. Uh, and then we're going to have a, a mechanical engineer on to talk a little bit about engineering. Another friend of mine from San Diego. So we've got some good guests coming on the podcast shortly. So look forward to those. And uh, until then, we will uh, we'll see you at our next podcast. Bye.